Derek Liebart says in the introduction to his newest book that, quote, only four people at the top echelon of Franklin Roosevelt's presidency from the frightening early months of spring 1933 until he died in April of 1945, and in their different ways, they were as wounded as he. The book is titled Unlikely Heroes, and Mr. Liebart puts the spotlight on people who served FDR for his entire presidency. Harry Lloyd Hopkins, Harold Ickes, Francis Perkins, and Henry Wallace. They all had a major role in creating and running what is known in history as the New Deal. Derek Liebert, your book, Unlikely Heroes, starts with this sentence. One of Franklin Roosevelt's favorite poems was Kipling's If. I just happen to have a copy here, but I want to first ask you, why did you start it that way? Because for FDR, life was an ongoing test of endurance. And he wanted the people closest to him to be able to, as he said, take it. To be able to stick into the battle and to overcome all. If summarizes that ethic. I'm not going to read the poem, but I, it, just, it starts out, if you can keep your head when all ab uh, about you are losing theirs and blaming it on you, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, but make allowance for their doubting too. If you can wait and not be tired by waiting or being lied about, don't deal in lies. Or being hated, don't give away to hating. And yet, don't look good, too good, nor talk to, why, too wise. What, what, what does that paragraph s sum up about your book? Heroes have to overcome all sorts of obstacles physical, emotional, political. And FDR, of course, had been stricken by polio since 1921. And he had gone far to overcome that, and indeed to conceal it from much of the country. He surrounded himself with the four closest associates from the very beginning of his administration until he died 12 years later in April 1945. And by no coincidence, each of them was as grievously wounded as was he. Well, let's break it down. Who was Harold Ickes that you write about? Harold Ickes was a phenomenally powerful Secretary of the Interior. He was 59 at the start of FDR's administration in 1933. He had described himself as a loser and a has-been, as a single solo practicing lawyer in Chicago, constantly fecklessly suing the city. He was also what's today called bipolar and then manic depression. There were days when he couldn't speak and he self-medicated on Nembutal and whiskey chasers from the beginning of this administration until the very end. And he had what at that time also was called psychodramas with FDR, where they would scream at each other. And Ickes had come from Altoona, Pennsylvania, had been an abused child, hated to be touched by men. So FDR, with his brilliant manipulativeness, would always sit across from Ickes and place his hand on his knee, which Ickes would adore and gush about. It was a strange relationship. Harry Hopkins. Harry Hopkins was 41 at the start of the administration, a professional social worker. He had always been racked by ulcers and had been as frail for as long as FDR knew him. He had served FDR when Roosevelt was governor of New York. In 1937, he had three quarters of his stomach removed for a cancer operation. And his role was the de facto secretary of public welfare during the 30s. And then during World War II, he became FDR's closest political military advisor. But what hasn't been known about Hopkins is that so much of that agony could have been avoided. He was bizarrely self-destructive. He would flush his medicines and nutrients down the toilet time and time again. 
as he would recover, he would go on drinking binges that would get him ill and back into the naval hospital. But the sicker he got, the closer and closer he grew to FDR. And that carried on throughout the war as Churchill, Stalin, FDR all hovered around Harry's latest illness. Well, you told us that uh, Harold Dickies was the Secretary of the Interior. What was the highest is a title for Harry Hopkins? The title was Director of the WPA, the Works Progress Administration. The mission of that, beginning in 1935, was to get as many Americans employed doing anything as soon as possible. There had been predecessor efforts at that, pushing out money to hire people, put them to work, whether it was drawing paintings on the sides of buildings or raking leaves, anything to get the money out there and put people to work, and Hopkins was extremely good at that. Your third of four people that you call unlikely heroes, Francis Perkins. Francis Perkins, 53 at the start of the administration, was the first female ever to serve in a presidential cabinet. Like Hopkins, whom she knew under FDR's governorship, she was a longtime professional activist and social worker. She had been FDR's commissioner for labor affairs in Albany, New York. But Frances also had a, a trying, sad life. Her one-time glamorous husband suffered from grievous mental illness and was hospitalized in an extremely expensive private sanitarium in Westchester County, New York. Her daughter was similarly afflicted. Frances Perkins was always bereft for money and a very lonely person as well, although she would confess to having two or three close personal friends, as she described it. And she was Secretary of Labor. But all these titles, Secretary of the Interior, Secretary of Labor, Secretary of Agriculture, when we get to Henry Wallace, they can't be compared to today because those were phenomenally more important positions in that era. And you just mentioned him, Henry Wallace, former vice president. Indeed, and Secretary of Agriculture, which was the biggest government department at a time when about 30% of Americans made their living from the land. Henry Wallace had what the New York Times called a freakish intellect. Henry Wallace spoke as an equal with Einstein and with the great economist, John Maynard Keynes. He was also a very solitary man. The famous historian, Arthur Schlesinger Jr., who knew Wallace, said that there was a emptiness at the core of Wallace's soul. It was a genius that kept him apart from others. He bonded intellectually, however, with FDR, who had a capacious mind of his own, and in 1940, FDR asked him to run for vice president on his ticket. Let's go back over the four again and tell us more about them as their, their people, but what, the, what did they look like, how did they dress, uh, what was their demeanor on a day-to-day -day basis that you could find, and we'll start with Harold Ickes. Harold Ickes was five foot seven, sandy-haired at the start, spectacles. He was not particularly physically impressive. He was caught in a 25-year torturous marriage with lots of domestic violence until his wife died in a car wreck in 1935. And then he married the striking Jane Dahlman, who had just graduated from Smith College with a 40-year age difference between them. In fact, she was the sister of his stepson's wife. And they had a storied romance. Jane, 40 years younger, 
would go on to march with Dr. Martin Luther King in Selma, Alabama, and to fund Planned Parenthood. And she herself, when she married Secretary of the Interior Ickes, became a force within the administration. Harry Hopkins, you told us some about him, but what did he look like? He was six foot one, very skinny, 160 pounds perhaps, but when he was ill, he would shrivel to 125, 128, and people often described him as looking like a corpse and a skeleton, especially during World War II when he was doing diplomatic missions for FDR. But that was the source of his power, his illness, because everyone had to trundle to Harry Hopkins' illnesses. And if Harry could make such grievous sacrifices, surely we can too. How did it turn out that he spent three and a half years living in the White House? Lots of people lived in FDR's White House. Uh, Missy Lahan, his closest, closest female supporter and his de facto chief of staff, lived there. Eleanor had several of her friends living in the White House as well. For a while, Roosevelt's longtime aide, Louis, lived there as well. His Was that Howe? Louis Howe and his uh, crippled valet lived there too. So it was often described as a hotel. And when the Nazis rolled into France in 1940, Harry Hopkins and FDR were working late, and FDR said, spend the night. He wanted people close to him like that. Frances Perkins, what did she look like? How big was she? Oh, I don't think she was particularly tall. She had a roundish face. Her mother had told her always to wear those tricorn hats because they would make her ugliness a little more appealing. She had a, a deep, deep inner sadness to her in the eyes of many, and you can see that in photos of Frances Perkins. She said it pained her physically when she saw her photos in the newspapers. She always dressed in black because she wanted to be taken seriously. Henry Wallace from Orient, Iowa, tiny little place. What was he like physically? He was the most impressive by our standards today. He was 5'11", in perfect physical fitness, because at that era, climbing Pike's Peak, for example, or being a vegan, or going on long camping trips and hikes was looked upon as too eccentric. So he kept himself in perfect physical shape. He looked like a, a man of the land. He had a starchy voice and bushy hair. Back in, I haven't seen you since 2010 when we sat down and talked about your book Magic and Mayhem and I must say there's a lot there about you in that interview. If people want to go back and see it, it's on our archive. They can find it on the C-SPAN archives. It's very easy. It's an hour interview. Um, but since that time, what have you been doing? You told us about your, you were in a consultancy, you taught at Georgetown, you've done a lot of things in your life, but what have you done since 2010? Well, there was a book between the one that came out that you and I spoke about, Magic and Mayhem, about the ongoing foibles of U.S. foreign policy. There was a book that I worked on that came out in 2018, Grand Improvisation. It's about how the U.S. rose to power after World War II, and it won the biennial 2020 Harry S. Truman Book Award. That took time, but there is a day job, and that requires work as a management consultant, mostly in the tech space. How did you go about researching this book of the four unlikely heroes? That is a fascinating inquiry because, of course, it overlapped with COVID. So, so many of the great libraries that we depend on, Library of Congress, the presidential libraries, they were all closed. Harold Ickes kept a diary 
about four million words, three volumes have been published of that massive diary. The rest is in the Library of Congress. Francis Perkins has an enormous 5,000-page oral history that Columbia University has digitized. Henry Wallace has a 5,000-page oral history as well that Columbia had not yet digitized. And during COVID, I wrote the Columbia University librarian and said, I need to look at this interview. And Columbia University very generously digitized the whole thing and sent me a PDF. So those enabled me to go far in my research overlaying these massive amounts of insights from the four lieutenants, as I call them, plus drawing on the Hopkins papers, which are online at the FDR Presidential Library. So the new material behind this book is to overlay those four masses, massive sources of information. And from that, we can create dialogue, and we can also see how they pool to their impressions of FDR. What did each of them think of each other? They were friends, but through very gritted teeth. They came together as a particular type of FDR group in 1933. Perkins and Hopkins had known each other from the governorship in Albany, but they gelled and found common interest together in 1933. FDR had an uncanny ability to select talent. And there was no official group, or as historians call it, a team in the FDR administration. He would never have countenanced any rival source of power. But they had close personal relationships. Perkins and Henry and Elo Wallace would go to church together every Sunday at St. James here on Capitol Hill. Indeed, in 1939, Henry Wallace, as Secretary of Agriculture, saved Henry Hopkins' life by having his scientists at the Agriculture Department create nutrients that Harry could then live on for his remaining days. Perkins and Harold Ickes worked hand in glove on handling the great labor strikes of that era. So it was a close bonding of personalities as well as political figures. How did you, we talked about the research, how did you categorize it in your own work so you could get easy, easy access to each of the four? There are more myths that surround Franklin Roosevelt and the Franklin Roosevelt presidency than any other presidency in American history. It's full of myths. Myths that are huge about how the New Deal was created and implemented. Myths such as why FDR never backed the anti-lynching bills of the late 30s, which was the South's primary instrument of racial terror. Myths that FDR had some kind of a friendship with Churchill. And myths at the end of World War II that there was no alternative but for him to allow the Red Army to sweep into Eastern Europe. The Roosevelt presidency is myth upon myth. And as I began to look closer at the presidency, I zeroed in on what historians had not written about before, which is how FDR led and how FDR governed. And it had not been noted that only four officials at the very top were there from beginning to end, that they were a group of friends, and that each of them, in the idiom of the day, was crippled, as was the president. Let's go through the four and tell us the individual's relationship with FDR during those 12 years. Start with Harold Ickes. How did he relate to FDR? He had the psychodrama, and that was a word of the time, the psychodrama relationship with FDR. It startled him how rude he could be with the president. And on the other hand, FDR enjoyed getting into Icky's strange life of sexual peccadilloes, of corner cutting, of 
propositioning the wife of a British diplomat at dinner. That all amused FDR greatly. But he had Harold Ickes as his bruiser, his enforcer, as basically the chancellor of this administration to a very watchful monarch. It's important to emphasize that FDR enabled each of these four to soar. They were in political suburbia at best in 1933. Unlike any previous team, say around President Lincoln, these were all outsiders. None of them thought they were better than FDR. He brought these near outcasts together and he enabled them to soar. Ickes became what was called the king's champion. He would do much of the bare knuckle fighting on the hustings for FDR. Harry Hopkins and his personal relationship with FDR? FDR had a great tactile sense as well. So whereas he'd put his hand on the knee of Ickes, who hated being touched by men, he would act toward Hopkins as if it was to a soldier in the trenches, squeezing his arm, getting him close. They shared the same doctors when Harry Hopkins moved into the White House. They could commiserate about their physical difficulties. It was not a friendship because FDR, according to Missy Lehand, was a man incapable of personal friendships. But to the extent that FDR allowed anyone to get close for a time, it would have been Harry Hopkins among the four. We'll come back to the other two of you. mentioned Missy Lehan. Tell us about her and when did she die in the middle of all this? Yes, Missy Lehan was a girl from the working class neighborhood of Somerville, Massachusetts. And she had started as a secretary to uh, well, gonna say to FDR even before he became governor. And she became very, very close to him in his recovery from polio in the mid-1920s. And when he was elected president March and came to Washington in March 1933, she accompanied him as a secretary, but she was much more than that. She was eyes, ears, at least as close to him as Eleanor. What'd she die of? She had terrible strokes at age 44 in May 1941 that truly crippled her. Indeed, her health had always been frail emotionally. Again, by no coincidence, time and time again, FDR would draw the wounded closest, closest to him, including Louis Howe, who you'd mentioned earlier a wizened, bent-over man who was reviled by his enemies as a gremlin. And Missy Lehand finally died after tormented years of being at home in Somerville, Massachusetts. She finally faded away in 1944. She was in her 40s? Yes. She was 44 when she suffered her strokes. But she was always the bright blue eyes and clicking high heels of the FDR White House. She was very close with Harold Ickes as, as a friend and confidant and advisor. Harry Hopkins, of course, became one of her pals as well. She was the gateway into FDR throughout the presidency until the tragic strokes of May 1941. Frances Perkins and her relationship to Franklin Roosevelt? She had known Franklin Roosevelt the longest since he was a state senator in 1911. She had known him since before the polio and she could recall what she described as FDR looking like a god king of an athlete as he would vault casually over a chair in a conference room. She knew FDR as the athlete as the, the rising young inheritor. And she knew him at least as well as Missy Lehand and perhaps better than Eleanor. They had a deep, deep trust. And she would do a lot of his behind the scenes work, ferreting out 
not just political intelligence from other politicians who would confide in her, but in an entire side story, she became his primary source of international espionage as the great power balance in Europe began to crumble in the late 1930s. Why did FDR tell Henry Wallace, who had been his Secretary of Agriculture, subsequent to that Secretary of Commerce and in the middle of the Vice President, to him that people thought he was a communist? Well, it's not, not FDR. They thought that Wallace was a communist. That was probably FDR's way also of tormenting Henry Wallace. FDR could be defined as a pretty conservative political figure, certainly for the time. Of course, he and the four lieutenants introduced the New Deal. But the New Deal should be remembered as the highest order of individualism, giving every American a chance regardless of birth, geography, race, religion. It gave Americans a chance. And Henry Wallace was an ardent backer of the New Deal. But by 1944, when Roosevelt made that accusation, Henry Wallace was seen as the champion of the New Deal, according to the Washington Post, whereas FDR had moved away from it to run the war. So the question always was, well, who was more left in that administration? It wasn't Henry Wallace. It would have been Harold Ickes by far. What's your own view of uh, FDR? A great leader, undoubtedly. But great leaders in a democracy don't have to be nice. They have to bond with the rest of us. They have to convey optimism and uplift. But they don't have to be nice guys. And FDR was ruthlessly self-centered. Rarely did he take a political move that risked undercutting his drive to power. You suggested he was devious? He was renowned as devious. And he was no longer believed on Capitol Hill by the late 1930s. Harry Truman, who would become his last vice president, for 80 days when Henry Wallace was pushed aside, said the president lies, he always lies. But FDR would lie even when he knew that you knew you were being lied to. He was exercising primacy. Because when FDR lied to you, you couldn't tell the beaming presence across the desk in the Oval Office, you're lying, no. It was FDR asserting primacy, and he did it over and over again. You point out in your book that Henry Wallace started a program at agriculture that pays farmers not to farm. Indeed, that was revolutionary for the time, and it has an enduring impact, as does so much from that era. Yes, it was called the Agricultural Compact, and it was a way to control farm prices, ideally to raise them up to be the equivalent of industrial price, prices and labor. Good idea. It's been a controversial one, but it's one that we have lived with for the past 90 years. Frances Perkins, Social Security, and the rights of workers, do you give her complete credit for that? Complete credit. It was very clear, as she would say, but that was echoed by anyone who was close to those issues, FDR had no interest in Social Security. It was said that he was pacifying Francis because she demanded it. FDR had no interest in the National Labor Relations Act of 1935. She was pushing it. And on and on and on again. And when we get to 1939 and 1940, with the searing issue of Jewish immigration from Nazi persecution, we see Francis Perkins doing everything, along with Harold Ickes, despite FDR, to open the gates. Where did Francis Perkins get this attitude about doing this? Where, what did she had a deep spiritual core. She was a serious Episcopalian, and she was serving her Episcopal God from beginning to end. In the lore of Frances Perkins, it shows how as a social activist she worked in 
Philadelphia as a young woman rescuing runaway girls from pimps, and in New York then by the early 1900s she was doing workers' rights and she saw the terrible triangle shirtwaist factory around uh, Lower Manhattan. She saw it firsthand from the curb. All of this had, had driven her to fight against child labor and to fight for workers' rights. You write that Harry Hopkins was not afraid to pump out money to citizens in dire emergency. That sounds familiar today. Indeed, but at the time, it was a radical proposition that government had a role to protect people in peacetime just as much as in wartime. The idea that the downtrodden had to be helped up by the federal government was radical stuff. How successful has all this been? At the time, it saved democracy in the United States, in my judgment. We forget how perilous democracy was during those years. Much, much, much is similar to today, though perhaps not in the same intensity. But whether it's the FDIC that we read about today in the headlines in bank bailouts, or whether it's political extremism, or minimum wage battles, or unions versus corporations, even climate change to think of the Dust Bowl. So many of those episodes in the 1930s are echoed today. On Harold Ickes, you say he was the strongest of the era's liberal reformers. Utterly, utterly. because. This grouping of four, these four lieutenants as I call them, this was the tough, enduring core of the FDR presidency from the very beginning to the very end. We have to realize all of them were real tough characters, and that certainly includes Francis Perkins. You didn't cross any of them with impunity, for better or for worse, and they could play as rough as the boss in their battles with Congress, in their battles with CEOs. What did you find in the media, basically the newspapers and radio, back in those days? What kind of coverage did these four people get? Oh, they were all accused of being socialists and communists. Indeed, the socialist slur was wrapped around FDR since the 1932 presidential campaign. They were all given the hammer and sickle treatment. They were all seen as establishing a government that was just one step shy of Moscow. And the slur of socialism just characterized the republic and even to some extent the conservative Democrat opponents from the very beginning to the very end. What was the relationship of FDR with Congress during those 12 years? Well, is always overlooked by every historian of the Roosevelt presidency is the extraordinary importance of the vice president during FDR's first terms in office, which were the 1930s, the New Deal years. FDR, of course, started with a, a marvelous relationship with Congress, but it deteriorated and deteriorated by the late 1930s. However, Historians might find it timely to ask, how was all this New Deal legislation pushed through Congress so fast? The greatest legislative strategist of his generation was Vice President John Garner from Uvalde, Texas, a 15-term congressman who had been Speaker of the House. He recast the Vice Presidency, of course with FDR's cooperation, and to an office that had not been that powerful since the days of Adams, Jefferson, and Burr. He had an impact not only on domestic affairs, but when you wanted to lay the riot act down for Japan, who would you send to Tokyo? John Garner in 1934-35 would go to Tokyo the highest official to go to Tokyo until Gerald Ford. 
and would meet with the Emperor of Japan, which had by then terribly invaded China. He was a, a fascinating, fascinating person who has been completely obscured by the historians of the New Deal. Why is it, I was about to ask you that, why is it that we learned that Mondale was the first vice president to make a big difference? And then we learned that Al Gore was the first vice president to really make a difference. And you can just, Joe Biden was the, I mean, you just go down the list of, I never have ever heard anybody say that John Nance Garner was that important. John Nance Garner was exceedingly important. You had the greatest push of legislation in American history during the 100 days, the first 100 days of the FDR presidency. That wasn't just done by the goodwill of Congress, let alone did that go on and on and on. FDR called John Nance Garner old man common sense. He was 13 years older than FDR, who was 51 at the start of the administration. And he and FDR had a relationship that by 1940 had deteriorated. John Nance Garner quit, or indeed declared himself for the presidency in December 1939. He didn't want to stay on as president. But Garner had some core values that were vital for that time. Among them was anti-lynching. He had troubling views of his own, such as on labor law. He adamantly opposed sit-down strikes, which would be declared illegal by the Supreme Court. But he was a fervent enemy of the Ku Klux Klan, and he was adamant against lynching. So how important was the war, World War II, to getting us out of the uh, Depression? It was vital to getting America out of the Depression. Certainly the New Deal didn't do it itself. Growth rates during the 1930s were sizzling. I you know, wish we could have them today for better or for worse, 10%, 12% a year, except when a recession struck in 1937, but unemployment never came down from a terrible, terrible high of 25% in 1930 to a lingering 15%. Everything the FDR presidency tried to do could not bring down the unemployment rate. Finally, by 1940, with military Keynesianism, meaning throwing so much money into buildups for war, the economy boomed. How much of what we have today is the underpinning of the federal government came from those 12 years when FDR was president and these four people were involved in creating these new programs? Here's a good way to think about it. When FDR was inaugurated on Saturday, March 4th, 1933, 90 years ago, people still spoke about these United States of America. Indeed, there was a prayer at St. John's Church right here near the White House, and the prayer extolled FDR as the future president of these United States of America. When America stood triumphant in the world in 1945, the term was the United States of America. That change had occurred over those dozen years. We went from these United States, we were brought together as the United States. So if you're alive, obviously, <laughs> strange way to say it, people who are alive today, what kind of things on a day-to-day -day basis were brought about back in those 12 years? Well, Social Security for one, which many of us still enjoy despite so many of the attacks even today on Social Security, minimum wage, labor rights if we want to enjoy union membership. Of course, this has been besieged from the get-go until today. You know, leave aside issues like racial discrimination and opposing immigration. But to be sure, this shapes our lives today. How did FDR dump Vice President Wallace? 
oh, that was devious and filled with lies as Wallace understood. A fascinating part of your question is why did he do it? Because initially in 1940, he bonded intellectually to be sure with Wallace, but Wallace was not a particularly adept politician in 1940. By 1944, when the Washington Post was praising Wallace as the New Deal champion, Wallace had turned into a formidable, formidable politician. And to be sure, the Democratic favorite if FDR did not run for a fourth term. FDR could never abide such rivalry, and it was no surprise to Wallace, as he wrote in his diary, that he would get it in the neck from FDR. Why did Henry Wallace like the Soviet Union? Well, the Soviets were our allies, and so much of this administration, FDR down, was naive about Stalin and the Soviet Union. FDR did not grasp that Stalin was another psychopath and a cleverer one than Hitler. They did not see the danger despite many, many warnings by people who indeed understood the Soviet Union. So FDR, with Harry Hopkins as his middleman to Stalin, Henry Wallace as well, Ickes too in his speeches, they focused on the near term. For a democracy, if you're going to have an ally in wartime, that ally is your friend, and you're dealing with your friends. and. The FDR administration, which was riddled by Soviet espionage, regarded Stalin and the Soviet Union as a friend of America. Why would FDR be so naive about, the, about Stalin? It was conceit because FDR believed he could handle anyone, that he could get at Stalin, quote unquote. He would act toward Stalin as he would to a big city political boss. He believed he could manipulate Stalin as well. He never understood Stalin. He knew he was a brutal dictator, to be sure, but there are lots of brutal dictators in the world. He didn't understand Stalin's subtle use of terror, that he was a psychopath, a destroyer of nations. What was Eleanor Roosevelt's relationship with these four people? Eleanor, throughout the presidency, was the country's primary figure of humanitarian values. And she was very useful for FDR on questions of the anti-lynching bill or Jew Jewish immigration. But Eleanor could also rationalize lots of her husband's inaction. Toward these four, she was cordial with all of them. She was close with Francis Perkins. They shared many of what Perkins would describe as Episcopalian values on race, on workers. She had uh, a cool relationship eventually with Hopkins, who she saw as manipulating the president and getting too close, and a cordial one with both Ickes and Wallace. Down to the end of FDR's time, where he died in 1945, and we were in the war, what were some of the stories that these four you can tell us about these four and how they related to the war effort as we got in those last couple years. That hasn't been understood by historians at all. The central role that each of these four figures played in delivering victory. On the home front, these were the equivalent of his military commanders. Think about this as a war of oil and machinery. Seven billion barrels of oil were used by the Allies to win World War II. The United States supplied six billion of those. The energy czar of all forms of energy during World War II was Harold Ickes. He played that vital role in getting oil to the Navy, to the Army, to the Air Corps. Right time, right place, always, and enabled victory through those billion barrels. Francis Perkins mobilized women on the home front, setting up child care centers, physicians for the families and children of GIs, and she mobilized a federal workforce of women. Henry Wallace, it's been completely forgotten, 
roused the country into war in 1941. Certainly FDR wasn't out on the stump talking about the need to intervene in Germany and to prepare for combat. And then in 1942, Henry Wallace did his brilliant speech called Century of the Common Man, where he laid out the values for which America was fighting for. All of them had pivotal roles during World War II. Why did Henry Wallace want us to go to war? Because he believed that the destiny of a democratic Europe and of America was inseparable. FDR, perhaps for good reasons, had to be much, much more cautious. But Henry Wallace, Harold Ickes specifically, w took off the gloves and went both after Nazism and Imperial Japan. Harold Ickes was the first high official to be denounced by Hitler. And Harold Ickes was the one who in July 1941, for better or for worse, cut off all oil to Japan without FDR agreeing to it or knowing about it until it was too late. No one had ever seen FDR so angry at anyone or anything as when Icky cut off the oil to Japan, describing it as a sanction. And it was too popular a move for FDR to reverse it. Going back to the end of the war and the fact that you pointed out in your book, of course, that FDR was very sick. Why did the country vote him back in in 1944 in his fourth term when he was so sick at the time? Well, it wasn't apparent, even to those closest around him, how sick FDR was. He had always had undulating health. Indeed, as if the presidency wasn't tough enough, being in that office for 12 years, 10, 11, 12 years during the Depression and during war, he suffered from a variety of physical ailments, but congestive heart failure was ganging up on him through 1944. To be sure, it could be concealed from the country, but even if you were close in to FDR and met with him periodically during the week, he could turn it on and he could turn it off. He could rebound. He could engage with you immediately if you raised a compelling issue with him, which was usually a political one. You, you point out that uh, at his fourth inaugural speech that was given at the White House, that he only had 500 boards, a little bit more than that, shortest inaugural speech in history, and that he was quite wobbly. Did yes. people not notice that? Yes, those who were very close to him, standing around him as he gave the speech, could see him grip onto the lectern. Indeed, but it was as if they denied it themselves. After FDR died, April 12, 1945, everyone would write in books or give interviews saying, oh yes, well we knew he wasn't going to be long for this world. But what shows that to be misremembering is that nobody had been courting Harry Truman for those 80 days when Truman was VP. You can check Truman's calendar and you could see that no one was regarding him as a president-in-waiting. These four that you write about, what did you not like about each one of them? We can start with uh, Harold Ickes. Harold Ickes had a, a terribly tortured sexual life. Indeed, he had seduced his stepdaughter, which was one reason for the tormented marriage he had with Anna Wilmarth, his first marriage to a rich divorcee. He could be uh, whiny as a child, which is how FDR often treated him as a child. Uh, but ultimately what he had to overcome in order to accomplish so much can't help but uh, leave me, at least, as admiring him. As long as we're on Harold Ickes, what about, what's the difference between Harold Ickes and his son, Harold Ickes Jr., that served in the Obama administration? It's a fascinating development today that the descendants of each of these four lieutenants, as well as of FDR, are now a group of political activists who were fighting for New Deal values and New Deal legislation. That would include grandson 
Jim Roosevelt. It would include Harold Ickes Jr., the actual son of Harold Ickes and his wife Jane Dahlman. It would include June Hopkins, who is Harry Hopkins' granddaughter, and Tom Perkins Coggeshell, who is Francis Perkins' grandson. They are now out there calling themselves the descendants and well known from writing in Politico, The Hill, The Nation, from speaking around the country about the importance of upholding Social Security, among other New Deal achievements. Do you talk to any of them? I do. We have, in the past weeks, become friends, and we expect to advocate for many of these issues using the book, using their organization, using the Wallace Global Fund, which is the result of Henry Wallace Sr.'s great achievement in biogenetics. Would you characterize your politics the same as the ones you're talking about now? Oh, gosh. Uh, I was a fundraiser for Ronald Reagan and then a fundraiser for Obama, and I'm a registered independent in Washington, D.C. So what motivated you to do the fundraising for Reagan and Obama? For Reagan, it was foreign policy, because I was deeply involved as a young academic at Harvard in U.S. foreign policy, and I saw the Soviet Union as exceedingly dangerous and predatory. By the time that Obama was running, however, America's domestic scene was in desperate need of help, and that got me involved in the Obama campaigns. We talked in 2010 about foreign policy and your attitude about the foreign policy world. When you went to Oxford, what did you learn about what's being taught at Oxford, which has such a, you know, it's got a very positive image in the United States, the Rhodes Scholarship and all that. What are they teaching at Oxford? What were they teaching when you were there? Well, I got a doctorate at Oxford in political economy a long time ago. But part of the fun of the Oxford system is that in graduate school, they don't do much teaching. They leave you alone to do your research, to produce a thesis, and then to defend it vigorously. It was pretty laissez-faire, my experience, and that's the Oxford approach to graduate studies. They want their doctoral candidates to do an original contribution to knowledge, which is the requirement for a doctorate. As long as we're talking about it, you education in Harvard, what is Harvard? So, so many people in this town are from uh, education got from Harvard. Well, I wasn't educated at Harvard at all. No, but you taught there. Well, I was a postdoctoral research Research. fellow. But you know Harvard, you've been there. What what is Harvard teaching uh, about foreign policy, and what impact is that having on a town like this? I would see a great diversity from what I read at Harvard. One can find eminent professors like Stephen Walt at the Kennedy School, a former dean, who is a leading proponent, proponent of responsible statesmanship for instance, which means a more cautious U.S. foreign policy. And of course, there must be others on the Harvard faculty and the students, et cetera, who would be more enthusiastic about global engagement. I, in foreign policy, have seen a pretty good diversity there. I want to go back to a question I asked you earlier, and I didn't, we didn't get to the others. What did you not like about Harry Hopkins? Well, Harry Hopkins, was a fixer and a manipulator until he met a much, much cooler, bigger fixer and manipulator in FDR. And Hopkins was always grateful, I think, that he had gotten that close to FDR. But so many of the characteristics that made both Hopkins and FDR disagreeable, their their lying, their manipulations, their petty cruelties, also enabled them to be great servants of their country and to achieve so much. How often, by the way, did Harry Hopkins go off on his own in foreign policy and meet with people like Churchill and and did he have a relationship at all with Stalin? Indeed, but that was under FDR's very, very close supervision. Indeed, he met Churchill and 
even before America's entry into the war and assured Churchill that America would not allow Britain to go under. Ditto, he would meet Stalin during 1941 once the Nazis turned on their Soviet ally. Yes, so he was FDR's great diplomat during the war, but it was far more than a diplomat. It was a political military representative. And by 1944, he essentially became de facto Secretary of State when the long-serving Cordell Hall finally quit. You, you, you talk about the Hopkins being very sick with a lot of diarrhea and um, a lot of stomach problems and all that stuff, and had, had abdominal pain and would, would go on a long trip and all that. Why did not somebody stop him if he was that ill from uh, being involved in these critical times? Well. Many tried to help Harry in his sufferings. He had many people that he patronized, such as General George Marshall and Averill Harriman and so on, but they were all pretty wise to his self-destruction. And there was no persuading him to the contrary. The White House physician, FDR himself, knew that Harry would go off on drinking binges whenever he started to recover. But that was part of Hopkins' way of exerting power and getting close to FDR. There's one interesting note that you said that when the meeting, when they had the meeting in Crimea, that Stalin said basically, if you don't come to me, I'm not going to have this meeting. How often did that happen? That happened from Tehran in 1943 onwards. That was when FDR and Hopkins first met Stalin. Stalin said, sure, you can have a summit, but unless you come all the way to Tehran in what was then Soviet-occupied northern Iran, we're not going to meet. So time and time again, Americans compromised with Stalin. And we gave Stalin a flood of lend-lease aid, far, far what was needed to sustain the Red Army. We used no leverage on Stalin when we could, such as suddenly having, say, supply chain problems with the delivery of Lend-Lease aid. So we allowed ourselves also to be entirely open to Soviet espionage. They realized what was going on, they being Harry Hopkins, but the Soviet Union was seen as our friend. We had nothing to fear. We could be open with them. What happened because of this attitude toward the Soviet Union? What happened was a great deal of American secrets, including those surrounding the Manhattan Project, which built the atomic bomb, going to Stalin, and ultimately the Red Army sweeping into all of Eastern Europe and staying put, and presiding over a tyranny in Eastern Europe until the end of the Cold War. We have two people to go on my question about what you didn't like about them, Francis Perkins. Oh, most everything about Francis Perkins is admirable. Ickes remarked at the end, a month or so after FDR's death, that Francis has taken a terrible beating. She wanted to leave in 1940 already. FDR just wouldn't permit it. He ordered her as a president to stay in her role. Frances suffered grievously, not only because of family problems with her ill husband and ill daughter, but she lost her two life partners during those years. Mary Harriman Rumsey, Avril Harriman's older sister who died in a riding accident in 1935. Frances had lived with her for several years here in Georgetown. And then in 1942, Congressman, Congresswoman Caroline O'Day from the state of New York died as well after Frances had really stood by her deathbed for, for a long, long time. These were grievous losses for Frances Perkins. What did you not like about Henry Wallace? Well, Henry Hall, Wallace could be notoriously aloof but it wasn't an aloofness out of arrogance or not liking people. It was an aloofness because he was following his own vision. So he would be able to walk through a room and not notice you or be in a conversation and appear ethereal. And that annoyed lots of congressmen. 
He would preside over the Senate as vice president, and he would slump down in his chair as visibly bored, and then he would challenge people to play paddle ball with him or go climb a mountain, which they thought ludicrous. After uh, FDR's death in 1945, each of these four lived, one of them not very long. Harry Hopkins died in 1946 at 55. How did he die, and uh, what did he do in that interim period after FDR died? He was given a job by the mayor of New York at that time to preside over a labor organization for the garment union in New York. Very high salary at that time, 25000 And he also got a big book deal to write his memoirs. But he couldn't function by then. He was living in a grand, grand mansion on Fifth Avenue, subsidized by Averill Harriman. But he was getting sicker and sicker and sicker. And then by January 46, finally could hang on no longer. What did he die of? He died of the diseases that had been undercutting him for out these decades, malnutrition. Essentially, he starved to death. Harold Ickes lasted until 1952, and he was 77. What was his life like after FDR? Truman couldn't put up with Ickes. Part of FDR being a great leader is that he would tolerate ferocious abuse from Ickes, because Ickes was useful in contributing much to the country. Harry Truman wouldn't put up with that for a moment, and by February 46, fired Ickes, who became an exceedingly well-paid columnist for newspapers. And Ickes carried his battle for civil rights into the press, and wrote and wrote and wrote columns and columns until the day he died in 52. Henry Wallace died in 1965 at age 77. What was his life like and after? So did, so did Francis Perkins. They died very close to each other in 1965. I, Henry Wallace ran for president a feckless campaign in 1948 that went nowhere and was regrettably backed, as he would acknowledge a few years later, by the Communist Party. He then became a farmer and withdrew from politics. Frances Perkins, for her part, after FDR's death, became a commissioner of uh, the Social Security Commission. And she ended up her life teaching at Cornell as a lecturer. But none of them carried on to any great famous positions, as one might think. With FDR gone, they drew apart what was the hardest part of writing this book? Oh, well, as you suggested earlier, writing it during COVID and making sure that one had access to the key papers and people. When we last talked in 2010, you were being very critical of America's, um, the way America uh, exercised its foreign policy. We've had 13 years <laughs> since I last saw you in this studio, what, what's your reaction to the last 13 years and how we're functioning with foreign policy? FDR would say repeatedly that war is too important to be left to generals. And that's worth remembering when we see so many generals talking on television, retired generals to be sure, with belated wisdom about America's failing wars. America has failed at war time and time again, and for the exact same reasons, Vietnam, Iraq, Afghanistan, believing that we can transform the world. Why? It's deeply embedded within our culture. We're a culture of change. We're a culture of immigrants. We're a culture many times of idealists. And it's easy to believe, one, that everybody would really rather be like us. And two, we have faith in silver high-tech bullets of weaponry where we think that invading North Korea, as we did in September 1950, is going to be a cinch, where we believe in Vietnam that we can knock over the Viet Cong because we have helicopters on our side, or that Iraq and Afghanistan might be easy because of net-centric warfare. Would these four unlikely heroes uh, be doing the same thing that Joe Biden is doing in uh, Ukraine? Oh. That might be comparing apples and oranges, but 
Harold Ickes probably would do what he did toward the Spanish Civil War and want to pick up a gun and join the fight. Henry Wallace would be his more cautious self in foreign policy. Francis Perkins would want to spread the New Deal to Ukraine. And Hopkins would find some powerful mediating role for himself. Do you have another book in you? I do, but it's in the concept stage. Any rough idea of which way you're headed? Yes, it's a new understanding of the human experience. And it's exploring what the Romans called time the devourer. The extent to which destruction, war, delay, misdirection has held back the progress of civilization, at least since the 13th century. It goes back to an earlier book that I worked on, which was To Dare and to Conquer, about how the past three millennia have been shaped by special operations. Our guest for the last hour or so has been Derek Liebart, and his book is Unlikely Heroes, Franklin Roosevelt, His Four Lieutenants, and The World They Made. Thank you, sir. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Book Notes Plus podcast. Please rate and review Book Notes Plus, and don't forget to follow so you never miss an episode. Questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. You can email us at podcasts at c-span.org.